from New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer, now responsible for caring for and supporting two children. Congratulations, Matt, and welcome back. You look and sound incredibly fresh and focused. I sound particularly good, I think. On this episode of SVU, Allison and I will take a look back at 2017, which was, in so many ways, a fiery hellscape of a year. But hey, at least there were some good movies. Yes, it's time for our annual year-end awards. The Academy has the Oscars. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association has the Golden Globes. The other Academy has the Emmys. And we, we have the Sfoovies, in which we take a look back at the last 12 months in movies by way of some often unconventional categories. And of course, it's very nice with the vibrato there. <laughs> Thank and, you. Uh, of course, later on, we'll be bringing you a rundown of some of the many titles that are new to streaming, as well as some that you have recommended to us. But first, while there are no trophies, or maybe we do have trophies, you can't tell this is a podcast, uh, know that the biggest winners in our hearts will Will always be you, the SVU listeners. It's time for the Svoovies. So we've been doing the Svoovies for a long time. I think we were kind of doing them in a different, slightly different form on the old podcast, the IFC podcast. Uh, so we've been doing this for a very long time, and the, the the categories tend to come and go. Some change, some get added, some get dis- uh, subtracted. But two categories that I think have been with us since the very beginning and have never changed and are here every year, are the We Didn't Get It Award and the They Didn't Get It Award. Uh, pretty self-explanatory, the We Didn't Get It Award, a, a film that was widely acclaimed that for whatever reason, which we'll try to explain, Allison and I just didn't get it. And then the They Didn't Get It Award is the opposite. It's a film we love that for whatever reason didn't get the critical acclaim or maybe was a big flop with audiences. Uh, so yeah, those are our categories. Do you want to do we or they first, Let's Allison? Let's do we. All Let's right. Start with the the being baffled. Okay, so Allison, what is your winner this year for the 2017 we, or in your case, I didn't get yes. an award? I did not get Wonderstruck, uh, the oh. Todd Haynes film. Still in theaters. Uh, it's, it'll turn up on Amazon eventually, and it is available for pre-order now if you're interested in that. Uh, you know, his his period-hopping drama about two children, different eras in New York City, really spared no expense. Amazon Studios, you know, it, it premiered at Cannes. It was fairly well-received there. Uh, cast is incredible. Julianne Moore, Michelle Williams, Tom Noonan, in addition to these child leads, Oakes Fegley, and first-timer Millicent Simmons, uh, who, like her character, is deaf. Carter Burwell did the music. Ed Lockman did the cinematography. 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. And man, did I just not take to this movie. <laughs> I, like, I will go so far to say I actively disliked this movie. Ooh. I am with you, members of the public, who widely rejected this movie at the box office. Um, You're the voice of the people. I am, apparently. Very rare, frankly, that I feel like I'm the voice of the people. Um, But, you know, this is, it's just like a movie about children. It's not really a children's movie, or I I think would certainly at least bore the hell out of all but the most patient of children. And yet, I think that it also fails at capturing any kind of sense of legit childlike wonder. It strives so hard to do this. Uh, It's based on a book by Brian Selznick. 
he wrote the screenplay. He also wrote the book that Martin Scorsese's Hugo was adapted from, which I did not like either. And I think maybe I just find his work charmless. But it is, I think, the biggest frustration for me of this movie is that it is a puzzle box of a story that requires characters to withhold information, not just for no reason other than to preserve the mystery, but to do so in ways that make them end up seeming cruel you know, like, especially one of the key questions of the movie is one of the character's father, like the, the identity of his father. Right. And as the movie unfolds, you start to realize more and more that it is absolutely outrageous that his mother didn't just tell him uh, that like, it's a secret in the first place. Like, right. there is no kind of reason for her to have withheld this information from him. Uh, it's so frustrating and kind of uh, capricious uh, you know, I, I know that there's, this is supposed to be a 20th century fairy tale. I'm supposed to be won over by this kind of crinkled paper whimsy of it swapping between a uh, silent film style and you a really 70s style. This movie. I really do. I really do. <laughs> but I think the characters. I can see, I can see it. Your body language is so angry. Cardboard cutouts. Ooh. And there's something about it that feels kind of contemptuous of both the characters and the audience. It was not for me. It was really. Todd Hayen, someone who I generally tend to admire sure. and like, this was really, really uh, did not work for me wow so that is my we didn't get it award wow you sure didn't get it wow. i really did not well i can't defend it that's actually one of the uh, movies that i did not have a chance to see yet this year um i may not rush out and see it now though it, I, I mean it is Seems an amazon studios film but it will so it will eventually end up on, on amazon Prime. streaming yeah maybe we'll review it on the podcast so you can watch it again <laughs> And see all the magic you missed the first time. Absolutely. Well, I didn't have a super strong uh, pick for this one. I certainly my my pick is not a movie that I hated uh, nearly as much as Allison. Mine is more like a, I liked it, but I didn't like it as you know. I just don't seem to uh, love this movie the way some people do. And that is Call Me by Your Name, a movie that I, mm. I found enjoyable, um, lovely. Um, and the end of the film I found very moving. The last 15 minutes or so, there's Michael the, Stuhlbarg. Michael Stuhlbarg gives an absolutely magnificent speech, a scene where he's playing a father to a, a son who's heartbroken, and he gives him this this speech about love and growing up, and it's, it's beautiful. It's beautifully acted. It's beautifully written. It's a wonderful scene. And then there's a, a couple more scenes right after that, and on the very final scene, the closing credits of the movie are absolutely gorgeous as well. Um, but I just thought, to be t- totally honest, I thought that this movie was like way too long <laughs> and just didn't have enough stuff going on. It is uh, this sort of uh, romance between these two young men, Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer. Timothy Chalamet is the uh, younger of the two. He's the the son of this, uh, I guess he's like a historian, a professor. Yeah, all he's of an the above. He's, he's an, an academic, academic living in Italy. Um, and he's and Timothy Chalamet plays his son. It's the summer, and there's just a lot of lounging and frolicking and romping. It's a very nice life. It looks yes, like. it looks lovely to be in this movie. Absolutely, and Army Hammer is like the research assistant for the Michael Stuhlbarg character who comes. He's a little bit older, and they strike up this relationship. I, you know, I there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. I would say overall, I like the movie. I would recommend the movie. I just didn't like swoon over it the way other people did. Maybe I just saw it after everyone else. And, and, and so my expectations were a little high. I just didn't think it quite lived up to the hype. I think it's a very solid movie. And like I said, I thought the ending was amazing, but it did feel a little like you could have cut 10 minutes out of this movie. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have necessarily missed it that much. 
And I don't know, the the, 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 the Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet, I didn't think they were the most convincing, the most... I didn't find there was a ton of chemistry where I felt like their, I don't know, their their erotic tension was like leaping off the screen in every single scene. So those are my, my it's, it's a qualified we didn't get it. I get it. I just don't get it all the way. It's not in my top 10 list. It's not even in my honorable mention list for the year. It's just, I thought it was a good, very good movie, but it didn't quite make that upper echelon for me. I appreciate that. I didn't put it in my top 10 either. I think it would make, probably make my my honorable mentions, but I as someone who has loved Luca Guadagnino's past movies, yes. I love like the wild kind of ecstatic sensuality of his last two especially. And this one he very deliberately tamped it down. It's a little more muted. And and I feel like I so I prefer like the kind of just big overflowing feelings and sensuality of his his past two. Yeah. All right, so let's do the They Didn't Get It Award. Yes. All right, Allison, what uh, critically reviled slash box office <laughs> flop are okay. you going to go to bat for in 2017? I'm going to go to bat for, and I feel like this is another one where I'm like, it was not entirely rejected, but it was it was not a success. Uh, they did not get Alien Covenant. Oh, sure. Yes. They really, okay, they I'm with, okay, not. go ahead, yes. go ahead. Which is available for rent if you're interested. Uh, you know, it's funny, like, speaking of, uh, I think I, I said that I felt like uh, Wonderstruck had a kind of contempt for its characters and audience. Uh, Alien Covenant definitely has contempt for its characters, and it is absolutely deliberate in a way that I loved. You know, I remember walking out of, uh, after the screening of this movie with uh, a colleague of ours who, who kind of shrugged and said, you know, I didn't really care about all of those characters on the ship. And I was like, yes! You know, I shrieked, that is the point! You're not supposed to care about them, and then ran off screaming into the night, which you know is how I exit all screenings. Uh, Covenant was semi ignored at the U.S. box office, but it made much clearer to me clearer what was I to me already pretty evident in Prometheus, which I like much more than you do, Matt. I yes. know, uh, which is that this new Alien trilogy, if it ever actually gets to become a trilogy, and I really hope it does is about a destructive, invasive species trying to spread itself across the universe, and that species is humanity. Ah, yes. Uh, you know, I love about that it. Michael Fassbender's David is the stealth protagonist of this new series. And he is this character who just regards humanity with the like removed curiosity of someone who owns like an ant farm and occasionally shakes it or burns it with a magnifying <laughs> glass. Uh, I just, I really, I like that the that his kind of sense... His remove and kind of like uh, the distance he has is built into these movies in the way they kind of regard people. Uh, the movie encourages you to get frustrated with behavior that is totally reasonably human. And in fact, behavior qualities that made Ripley in the first trilogy a resonant heroine, they get afraid. They have emotional attachments to others that put them that, that makes them put themselves in danger in order to help their loved ones. All of these things are things that should be like empathetic qualities but in this new trilogy just make you really frustrated <laughs> you know like their curiosity is frustrating everything they do is uh and i just i appreciate the ways in which it just tilts to a totally different direction while seemingly repeating many of the same patterns including in both of these new films having a like an obvious ripley stand-in who's just like a kind of like weak knockoff of a ripley character yeah i just i really there is something about it's it's the boldness and the audacity of revisiting uh, these kind of patterns of uh, of humanity versus this, you know, totally terrifying uh, 
species and then and, and looking at it from a totally different perspective in which who you root for and who you're supposed to be invested in is is so kind of swapped uh, and I think Fassbender is really good playing double characters in this. It's just like the audacity of some of those scenes, especially of them together, are some of my favorites of the year, really. Um, so yes, I feel like they did not get Alien Covenant. And I think that if you if you saw it the first time and I were not did not take to it, I think it's worth another try. All right. I think that's an excellent choice. I, I didn't love it quite as much as you did, but um, I liked it. And I agree that it was sort of, shocking how uh how poorly it did like it made less yeah. money a lot less money than prometheus which it had the alien name in it i mean that that would have really surprised me that or it did really surprise me but uh maybe people were so turned off by prometheus that they didn't want to give it another chance this i don't is, know I, this has also been a year in which uh certain we, we, we've learned that certain brand franchises don't have the staying power like Blade yeah. runner yeah. Some people, some some people are willing to turn out for, and some apparently, yeah. they aren't. I would have liked to have had one uh, character who was not an abject, you know, moron to root yeah, for. No, humanity is the worst. They, they could, go. they could not provide that for me. Uh, I like David. I root for him. Well, yeah, but like one human, <laughs> one human. No, and David's like uh, evil. Humanity, ugh, the worst. Wow. All right, uh, my uh, pick for the they didn't get an award is. Uh, a comedy, and it is a comedy that did very poorly at the box office and with critics, but was championed by one brave lone voice you? in the night. Well, no, now it has multiple voices, <laughs> but the no, I'm speaking, of course, of Chance the Rapper, who a few months ago went on a Twitter rant decrying critics such as ourselves <laughs> and all of Rotten Tomatoes for failing to give the Will Ferrell, Amy Poehler comedy The House a fair shake. He saw the movie and thought it was funny and was complaining on Twitter that uh, <laughs> that it was uh, – got. I think it got uh, like a 17%, something like that. And uh, he <laughs> – the rapper was furious about this. <laughs> if the film critics of today can't find why the house is a comedic delicacy, then I don't want to hear any more reviews was what he wrote. And you know what? I, 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 I In this case, I side with Chance the Rapper. I stand with Chance. <laughs> Uh, Warner Brothers had so little faith in this movie that they not only did they, um, you know, not show, uh, not, not have a bunch of early press screenings, they didn't have any press screenings at all. They the movie was I I never had a chance to see it at a press screening. I don't. I'm sure it you're the same. No, yeah, I, I still have not seen it. But it was a startling choice given who was involved with this movie. Right, Will Ferrell, Amy Poehler, Jason Manzukis, a lot of great people in this, and uh, I don't know why they thought it wasn't funny or that it wasn't worth screening it. And I don't know if maybe when you don't show a movie to critics, uh, they you know in some cases they assume it must be bad, and so they view it accordingly as they review it. Um, or I don't know. You send you don't send the a the a team stringers the a reviewers to see something, and so you send people who I don't know. I'm not saying their taste is suspect, but they think they're being sent to a dog. Or I don't know. Well, that that like 10 a.m. screening, the the Friday morning 10 a.m. screening is like a weird one. Like reviewing right. a movie off of that is always weird. Yes. You're seeing it in a crowd of weird people who are mostly film critics often. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the film did have like one notable defender, which was A.O. Scott from The New York Times. For right? whatever reason, The New York Times sent Tony Scott to review it. And he liked he it. He wanted to. Yeah. Maybe that was it. Maybe he just wanted to. It is a funny movie. It's a really, really funny movie. And, you know, just 
right off the top, I mean, the thing that really struck me was the, the, the criticism that is leveled against so many Will Ferrell or similar type comedies, and not unfairly is it that they're about these idiot man-children men, and the female roles in these movies are always these nagging scolds, and the women are just treated horribly. And in a lot of cases, that's true, unfortunately. In the case of The House, Amy Poehler is like, out crazying Will Ferrell, and it's absolutely wonderful to see. Like they're a married couple, and they like they seem legitimately like made for each other in their shared uh, lunacy. And so, I mean, the story is this: this couple uh, they can't afford to send their their daughter to college, and so to raise the money, they they open a underground casino in their buddy's house, which is Jason Manzoukas. And that's a pretty silly premise. But there's a ton of really good material in the movie. It's just one funny scene after another. And so, yeah, I, I don't really, I can't really explain why people rejected the movie. Yeah, it is a 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, I, I, I loved it. I wrote a piece you can find on Screen Crush about it and about why uh, critics tend to devalue comedies in general, which is a sort of a separate conversation that we could talk about another time when I have a voice. Um, but I've gotten a lot of notes from people since I wrote that saying, hey, I watched The House after you recommended it. It's funny. And so I would say the same to you. It's like, if you like Will Ferrell, if you like Amy Poehler, if you like Jason Manzoukas, who has a very large third role in the film, you got to check out The House. It's really funny. And uh, I want to hear more Chance the Rapper film reviews. I think the guy's got a good perspective. So that was my They Didn't Get Award, Get It Award winner for 2017. Allison, did you have any runners-up in either of these categories? Um, no, none that I came up with. All right. I just wanted to briefly give a uh, a shout-out to uh, Brad's status, the my runner-up We Didn't Get an Award. Oh, yeah. I hated that movie. Yeah, I know. I remember it afterwards. It 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good movie. <sighs> I think that it's supposed to make you feel in pain. Oh, <laughs> how, much in pain? how much in pain? I do pain? think that is absolutely deliberate. Like being waterboarded kind of pain? Yeah, like just cringing. Inside. All right, then I guess it's a masterpiece. <laughs> and then in terms of the they didn't get an award, uh, slightly they didn't get it what, to uh, uh, the Hitman's Bodyguard, which actually was a hit, but didn't get good reviews. Better than the, the, the House, but I found to be a totally charming like schlock B action movie. And audiences felt the exactly the same, and the, it kind of it was like a hit, basically, because everyone else failed punted, to show up. Punted yes. the end of August. <laughs> yes. It was the only not terrible August movie, and that's true. But it was not terrible, and so that's another one I would definitely recommend. Like uh, that's going to be a great like HBO movie. People are going to watch that movie on HBO forever. I'm an executive protection agent. You're the most wanted hitman in the world. It's my job to keep you alive. And how'd that go? My bad. You're bad. It was really difficult not to keep looking at movies that came out this year through a lens of the current political and social situation. I just feel like, in part because it just felt like it intruded in everything, but also because this year... It, it there was it felt like there was more pressure on like art and pop culture to speak or offer a total escape, right? To speak to where we're at or not. So we wanted to do two categories uh, that were the best attempts at intentional or otherwise, best best effort when it comes to relevance, because also all of these movies are made. Most of them were made, you know, months to years ago. Uh, and then we wanted to do the worst 
intentional or otherwise uh, gesture towards relevance. So let's start with the best. Matt, what movie did you feel best spoke to our time and place? Now, this is probably an obvious pick, but it's funny because it, it you know, it, it looked from the outside to be very relevant, and it was. But then there was a second layer that I certainly didn't foresee being relevant. So it was like doubly relevant. And that, I, I apologize for my voice. Next time I'm not going to do a karaoke <laughs> marathon th- th- while I'm sick the day before we do our year-end yeah, podcast. You can see a snippet from that on our Facebook page. Lesson learned. By the way. My pick is The Post. Steven Spielberg's movie about the Washington Post in the early 1970s, publishing the Pentagon Papers, these highly controversial classified documents um, that exposed years and decades of governmental secrecy and deceit in uh, the war in Vietnam. And obviously all of the the stuff about the Nixon White House going after the Post and also the New York Times, which plays a, a tangential role in the film, saying that they are biased and that they are they don't call them fake news but that they are essentially trying to undermine the government and breaking the law and yada 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 yada, doing all these things you don't need me to explain how that's relevant to 2017 the part that surprised me was the secondary relevance which is how much of the movie is about the Meryl Streep character who is the publisher of the post Catherine Graham who is non-existent in all the president's men she's not a character doesn't exist but in the post is is the most important character, along with Tom Hanks, who's Ben Bradley, who's the pub, the, the I guess the executive editor or whatever his title is. He's in charge of he's in charge the of the newsroom. And, yeah, the newsroom. And she's the owner. And and what what kind of blew me away is how much of the movie is about what we are what we're experiencing now about the treatment of women in the workplace. And Catherine Graham is the owner of this place. Um, and she is talked down to by her male underlings, and she's talked over and she's ignored in meetings her points are like people literally don't listen to her until a male colleague repeats what she says and at every turn she's you know there are characters there are male characters in the movie that are trying to undermine her and i don't know how now obviously the movie was made sort of in the political climate of the of 2016 in the election so there was 2017 it was made this year it was made this year but i mean it was conceived and written and when it was put into production all of the stuff about the post and the paper and the pentagon papers was already relevant but in terms of all the stuff about like the reckoning that's going on in terms of sexual misconduct and and the treatment of women in the workplace like that's the I would say mostly unintentional part, but it's like unbelievable how much of that is so front and center in the movie and how fascinating the timing is. And, and you know, that Catherine Graham character is is great and Meryl Streep is great in the movie. And it just, again, it like made me think about how in All the President's Men, that character doesn't exist and has been like erased and how she had to have been very important to the story, just as she was very important here. Because they're not publishing this stuff without the owner's approval. And the fact that she's not in All the President's Men, I, I really makes you – and a movie that I adore. It's one of my favorite movies. But that this really made me think about that. And even just the fact that like Meryl Streep is top billed in the movie and how often that happens where the, the, the female lead of a movie is top billed above a big male co-star like Tom Hanks. Almost never. And so that sort of stuff, it's like this is a movie that really made me kind of – Think about that stuff. Um, and so that's my winner. Um, and b- besides all that, it's a really good movie. Super entertaining. 
so well directed, you know, similar to all the president's men, similar to spotlight in terms of the content, but yeah, Steven Spielberg, spoiler alert, is a good director. He knows what he's doing. He he's, has he's going places. He has an incredible way with the camera. He makes it an, like a Hitchcockian thriller, and it's it's tremendous. I will say there's a third layer of relevance that I would oh. like to point to too, which okay. is that it is not a movie that is led by the reporters. It's led by the publisher, and it is very much about have like like journalism not just as this like public good where you're like get the scoop like get the story at all costs but also to be like this is also a business yes and that like especially right now when there's like we're back in another phase of media instability and layoffs and and just also having to think about like what how to make journalism sustainable as a business i think that the fact that it demands that you think about that that is true is very relevant as well excellent point depressingly so absolutely all right what is your best intentional or otherwise attempt at relevance all right well we already mentioned you already mentioned the one of mike white's two films this year actually three if you want to count his work on the emoji movie don't you dare (laughs) don't you even dare don't worry okay i'm not going to talk about brad status which he also directed i'm going to talk about beatrice at dinner uh which was actually directed by michael uh, miguel arteta who uh white collaborated with back on chuck and buck in the back in the day uh and this is another like like Chuck and Buck it, and like Brad status actually is like one of these movies that is intent on making you feel very uncomfortable and in a very good and relevant way. I think in this case, uh, it is literally about a dinner party made awkward by political conversations that its characters can't steer clear of, even though they keep trying to be like, ah, let's leave politics out of this. Let's you know, uh, they can't do it. These two characters keep steering into it. Uh, Salma Hayek plays the title character. She's a massage therapist. She drives out to this posh home uh, elsewhere in the LA area where one of her clients, Connie Britton, played by Connie Britton, lives. And when her car breaks down, Britton's character invites her to stay for this dinner party uh, her husband is throwing for some business uh, colleagues of theirs. Uh, And obviously she does not fit in with all of these people, Um, but she does stay. And she meets Doug Strutt, played by John Lithgow, who turns out to be this very successful, very ruthless developer. And then Beatrice, who is an immigrant and an activist and an animal lover, she starts to believe that she has had a brush with him in the past. And it gets more and more awkward from there, especially as there is more and more drinking. And what I really liked about this movie, beyond the fact that it gives, I think, what feels like a very current example of like two people who will are fighting will never, ever find common ground. You know, like there is no chance as their discourse gets more and more heated there is no chance for them to find some kind of middle ground they both feel so strongly in their convictions what i really liked is that while the sympathies are clearly on the side uh, of beatrice um she's a mike white heroine so she's kind of abrasive you know her self-righteousness is not portrayed as the most sympathetic quality uh and there is something really poignant and really almost hard to watch about the fact that her intense frustration that 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 people can't align with her values instinctively the people around her in particular this like rage that Doug won't allow himself to be shamed by what she feels these values she feels are so obviously right that they don't even need to be explained and i think that like as much as you know like Doug is this i think very cl- like kind of like easy analog to a trumpian character uh, uh beatrice is a very easy analog but like a kind of complicated one to to someone, to a kind of like very angry and uh, like kind of disheartened uh, liberal or like leftist. And I think there's something about the way that she just like 
smashes herself up against like hopelessly in an almost in a self-destructive way really uh and and not like kind of changing anyone's mind that i think kind of speaks to how a lot of people feel at the moment it's not an easy movie to watch by any means uh it is a very uncomfortable watch but it's just so deftly written and so smartly written Uh, and it is very much worth looking up especially if you did not see it when it kind of came and went uh, it got some some good notices, but like did not really stick around in theaters that long. Um, yeah, Beatrice at dinner. It's available for rent, and it is definitely worth renting. All right, I didn't I didn't quite like that one as much as you did. I felt like the, the I enjoyed the beginnings of it. I felt like the ending kind of let the movie down. I think that it it paints itself into a corner a bit. Yes. but actually, I uh, the more I thought about the ending, the more less I minded it. Okay. But I understand. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now it is time for our worst intentional or otherwise attempt at relevance. Would you like me to go first? Please do. So my worst intentional or otherwise attempt at relevance, I mean, it's not quite as on the nose as those best picks were, but I feel like if we asked the creators of this movie, they would have claimed, especially before it came out, that they were making some grand statement about our times. And then you would have said, really? And that movie is The Book of Henry. <laughs> this is the film from Colin Trevorrow, the director of a Jurassic World, Safety Not Guaranteed. And I would say the relevance that it is going for is that it has all of this feeling in it, this feeling about uh, the way we treat one another, that we let things slide, that our culture, that our society has gotten too cold, too unfeeling, and that we don't do enough to help each other. There's a There's a... The, the title character, this Henry character, makes these arguments that we need to do more. We need to help people. And uh, his mother, played by Naomi Watts, you know, he's constantly telling her, like, we need to do things. We need to do something. They find out that their neighbor, who's the chief of police in the town, is abusing his stepdaughter and that uh, Henry wants to help her. But they can't prove it. They can't get evidence. They can't figure it out. Naomi Watts doesn't want to get involved. It's not her place, and of course, he's constantly Henry saying things like, "You know, it's we have to do something." You know, and it's, I think it, I think there is a belief on the part of the filmmakers that they were making a statement about empathy and brotherhood and and um, love and all of these things, which are important, actually, genuinely important, always, but especially right now. I think in different hands, in better hands with different material, that that message could have resonated very strongly in 2017. And if we look at a list of films that came out this year, we probably could find a few where those same messages did resonate very strongly. But this was not that film. Should I should I spoil what happens? Spoil it. Spoil it. All right. I'm going to spoil it. If you, if you want to see The Book of Henry unspoiled, God help you. And uh, go ahead, but fast forward a few minutes, and I'm going to spoil what happens in this movie. Do you have you seen it, Allison? I have not. I've been looking forward to seeing it. You know what happens? Yes, I do. So Henry, who is basically like Rain Man, but not quite as extreme in terms of his uh, autism or whatever whatever illness or diagnosis you would give him, but he's a genius. But he's awkward. And he uh, makes Rube Goldberg machines. And he's a mathematical wizard. He balances his family's checkbook. He is basically the parent to his parent. Naomi Watts sits around all day playing video games. That's not a joke. He dies. He suddenly gets like brain cancer and dies. (laughs) 
Sorry. I mean, it's kind of funny in the movie. <laughs> so he leaves behind the Book of Henry. And the Book of Henry is an instruction manual to Naomi Watts how to kill the neighbor. Because that's the only way to save the, the girl who's being abused. Again, that's another element that's relevant, that sexual abuse is very important in this year. And it's even – I mean the way that this is handled is the most ludicrous and laughable thing you've ever seen in your entire life. Down to the fact that like they find the book and Jacob Tremblay plays the younger brother in the film. And like literally – The non-genius the one. The non-genius, non-dead one. <laughs> And he literally finds the book and runs downstairs and says, Mom, Mom, I think Henry wants us to kill Glenn. <laughs> Glenn being the next door neighbor. Of course. And they read the book and the book, you know, as they're reading it, Naomi Watts is saying things like, well, clearly this – we can't we, – we cannot do this. We have to go to the police. We have to report him to child services. And like they turn the page and it says, like, here's why you can't go to child services. Like, he's, he's like, almost like God. He, he's, like, having a conversation with them. And the scene ends with Naomi Watts turning to Jacob Tremblay and going, we are not murdering the chief of police, and that is final. <laughs> and it only gets crazier than there, including the fact that Naomi Watts goes, starts to go through with the plan. Listen to her dead son and kill, kill him. And not just like, I don't know, poison him, make it look like an accident, kill him by shooting him with a high-powered sniper rifle. You can't see Allison, but she's she's covering <laughs> her head. It is insane. It is delightful, hilarious. The end of the movie – I'm not going to spoil the very end. I'll leave that to you to discover. But the end is a classic – like. Let's see if you can guess this, Allison. If you were going to say this is a classic movie about like children finding themselves and reconnecting with loved ones, where would that sort of movie end? A movie about a child who's been – who's like discovering themselves, reconnecting with family. I don't know. A talent show, obviously. Oh, sorry. Uh, a school <laughs> talent show where there's a standing ovation. Of course. Obviously. Crosscut. With a woman trying to kill a man with a sniper rifle. It's heartwarming. Very heartwarming. So that, to me, was the runaway pick for this category. Oh, that's a good Highly one. recommended. It is available for <laughs> rent. I love it. It's my favorite good-bad movie in a very long time. It is The Book of Henry. Oh, my pick is much less fun than this. Uh, my pick for, like, the worst attempt at relevance, and it is definitely an active attempt, would be Catherine Bigelow's Detroit, which is available for rent right now. <laughs> this is the opposite. The opposite of your, I just of your this. approach. This yes. is the ultimate feel bad movie. It is. So like, I think the thing, and I do not think that this movie is like an all out failure, but I do feel like the ways in which it attempts to, to kind of like elevate this like horrifying moment of violence and bigotry and like like kind of like center it as important like it's just important to watch this i think ghost is, speaks to like how the film doesn't seem to really understand what it's trying to say you know like this is a film about the 1967 detroit algiers motel incident uh that was happening during this kind of uh unrest in detroit 
and uh and it's about uh, how the police come in and and basically have decided that the the inhabitants of this hotel are uh responsible for for taking a shot at them and there are acts of violence and murder that happen um but i like the fact this movie starts with no less than the context of the great migration you know it starts with this, this like prelude in which it, it talks about uh, the population shifts to cities from the black American population, among them Detroit. It talks about redlining. It uses this giant context of basically a post-reconstruction black American history and the oppression that came with it as an introduction you know, it is giant, vast context that like it, it, more than I think that it is able to support uh, and then goes on to present this this uh, act of decades old racialized police violence to be like, look, it was happening back then, which is not, frankly, I think a point that is valuable to people when you can say it's happening right now. You know, like what is the value of pointing out that it was happening in the 60s when you can watch, uh, you know, like someone Facebook living uh, a shooting uh, right now? Uh, there, there, it doesn't really justify it. its historical kind of impact. I think there's something to be said for the fact that the best part of this movie, certainly to me, is is not the actual anything that happens in the hotel. It is the ending when it kind of starts following and drifting towards following Algie Smith's character, who is one of the people who is at the hotel and just deals with his PTSD. Basically, he cannot get his life back on the same track that it was before. He just can't look at people the same way. He doesn't feel safe anymore. And I think that like that tiny, basically like little coda to this movie, the fact that it feels so much more powerful and so much more resonant, I think speaks to the fact that like, I, I don't think that with Detroit, they, they, uh, they felt like they were making uh, Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bowl felt like they were making a very important movie, but never really understood why, why it was important. And I do think that, just holding up an act of violence does not necessarily, it's not self-justify itself as important. Uh, it's a grueling movie. And I don't think that necessarily means it's a bad one. But in this case, I don't think it really justifies its own grueling qualities. Um, and I think that's the reason that it really never went anywhere. It kind of came and went. And a lot of people were being assured that it was very, very important. But I don't think that anyone, most people did not agree. And I think there's a reason. Uh, so yes, for me, that would be the biggest kind of swing and a miss in terms of having a relevant movie. Very, very good choice in that it is a disappointing movie. I mean, a huge to me, it was a huge swing and a miss. Yeah. And I mean, I think you kind of – I would just – everything you said I would agree with. Cause I just watched it uh, a week or two ago and, and was just like, what is the point of this? Right. And that was that was it. It was just – it's just kind of pointless. I mean, in terms of making this movie, yes. making it now, you know, like you said, depicting this event – it's. I mean, it's well made. The movie, of course, She's it is. She's a great director. She's, She's an incredible been a great director. director. Yeah. And I've loved so many of her movies, especially recently. This was like the first one in a while that she's made that's really disappointed me. Yeah. And that's. But that's it. I thought this was a huge. I mean, if we did like the biggest disappointment of 2017, mm-hmm. that could have been mine for sure. Yeah. Did you have any runner-ups in these categories? The only one I thought of for this one was I didn't have a best uh, a runner-up for the best category. Yeah. For worst. You know, I had uh, It Comes at Night, another disappointment for yeah. me this year. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, I mean, again, the the relevance there is a little more oblique. But I, the idea of like, you know, again, people connecting, closing themselves off, being paranoid, distrusting one another. This tribalism. Tribalism, yeah, yeah. yes. All of those things are in it. 
But that was another movie that I felt like was a huge swing and a miss, a big disappointment. And I loved Acrecia, Trey Edward Schultz's previous film was one of my favorite movies of last year. If it was last year or the year before, whatever year that came out. And I was, this, that would, I'm, you know, that was one of my most anticipated movies of this year. He's doing like a a horror film with a great cast. And it just, it, you know, it just, it was like, it seemed like the first draft of what that movie could have and should have been. It just didn't really get beneath the surface of the scenario, of the characters, of that relevance or that metaphor he was going for. Again, a good-looking movie, a well-made movie in terms of the – He moves you know, the camera beautifully. Absolutely. And like those shots like sort of slowly going down that hallway in this house, very creepy and spooky, but – Overall, I felt like it was a it was a it was a miss. Yeah, that was a frustrating one. I'll give a runner runner up for best or uh, you know best relevance to Get Out. I mean, an obvious of course. One. You don't sure. need to hear us talk about Get yeah, Out anymore. Like, yeah, there's a lot. Um, I will say there are a lot of kind of weird, especially this like fall attempts at like movies, relevant movies that I thought were like real whiffs. Suburbicon. Oh, oh, sure. Downsizing, yes. which is coming out, but oh, um, I will downsizing. give it <laughs> no. I will give a special mention to this like movie that I think was like accidentally uh, much more relevant than it wanted to be, and just really could not support it. Which is Bushwick, oh, the movie yeah. from the beginning of the year. Yeah. It was like a red dawn, like a kind of like blue state red dawn. Let's put it that way. Imagining Brooklyn for reasons like very unclear gets invaded by Texas racist Texas secessionists or secessionists who want to. You know, they're, they're, they don't like that there are, they thought it would be easy to take over Bushwick and Brooklyn in general because it's racially diverse. And, and it's just so pandery and dumb. And it, it's supposed to be this kind of schlocky B movie. It also, like, unrelated to the relevance, takes place in all of these super, super long takes in what is essentially real time and traps itself into this format that really gets very exhausting really quickly. Uh, there, there are reasons sometimes where you want to cut because very rarely are your characters interesting enough to watch for an hour and a half straight without the relief of just cutting to something better. Yeah. Um, yes. All right. We're going to roll through our next couple of categories a little quickly. Our next category on the spoovies is a great scene in a bad or forgettable movie. So the movie is bad. The movie is forgettable. A movie we wouldn't recommend. But there's one particular moment that we love that, we, that stood out. That made me go, made us go. If only the rest of the movie was like this, Allison. Yes. What is yours, Swoovie Award winner, for great scene in a bad or forgettable movie? I suspect this will be controversial, but I will say the opening sequence of Baby Driver. Ooh. Yes, which is available Ooh. for rent. I know. Um, I don't think that Baby Driver is a bad movie, but it definitely was underwhelming to me. It was a movie that, as much as I love Edgar Wright. I just, I, I felt like it exhausted its goodwill really quickly. And it built up so much goodwill in that opening scene where Ansel Elgort and John Bernthal and John Hamm and Aza Gonzalez pull up to the first bank of Atlanta and they start playing bell bottoms and everything's cut on the rhythms of the song. And, and Elgort kind of like jams out while the robbery takes place in the background. And then there's that car chase. It's all like six minutes long, I think. It's like perfect and delightful. It's, uh, wordless. And then the movie goes on and everything it layers on top of that, like the attempts at character development, the plot, just made it less and less interesting to me. It just felt like it was this fizzy, perfect, delightful moment. And then everything else just kind of diluted it. Uh, yeah. And so 
I, I loved that opening scene. I think it's great. It almost, it stands alone for me. And I think that I almost didn't need the rest of the movie to exist. I understand that's why it exists, but yes. I, as, as a, I would not agree that it is a bad movie if you want to go bad movie. I but don't if think you want to say movie. forgettable movie. Yes. I might, I might agree with, I might agree with you on this one. Yeah. I don't want to say it too loud. I know. People really liked this one. I wish I did. I, I agree. The beginning was amazing. To me, the most disappointing part was that conceit of the music and everything being cut to the music. It kind of, after the first scene, it didn't really seem to follow through as much throughout the rest of the right. movie. Right. There's a coffee scene, which sort of plays off of that. And then, yeah, after that, it starts. Mm, like, it's not as rigorous. No. The first scene is the most rigorous and the best. So, to me, that movie was a little bit underwhelming. I'll, I'll, go, I'll agree with you there. As much as I gave you a hard time when you. My great scene in a bad movie comes from a much worse movie. Okay. The Mummy. Mm. Did you see The Mummy? I did see The Mummy. It's a terrible movie. Rest in peace, Dark Universe. Yes, the movie that both launched and destroyed the Dark Universe. Universal's attempt to make an entire cinematic universe of their monsters, which seems like a slam dunk because the original cinematic universe was the Universal Monsters. They invented the concept way back in the 40s. That was where, you know, they made Dracula, they made Frankenstein, and then they made Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, the house of Frankenstein. They, like, they did it well, the first. So they, it should have made perfect sense. Uh, but then they started with this movie, The Mummy, and it was absolutely awful. Tom Cruise playing Tom Cruise, and there's a female mummy, and there's a Russell Crowe playing the <laughs> the head of the least effective. Playing like, the Samuel L. Jackson of this. Right. <laughs> The universe. Nick Fury of the universe, like the guy, the ghost hunters, but just being very bad at his job. Do you know the scene I'm going to say? The great scene in this movie? Do you remember? I have a feeling, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't. I, this movie is basically dissolved from my mind. Right. Well, quickly. it was bad and forgettable in that case. But uh, the scene was early in the film. Um, and this is not a spoiler. If you saw the trailer, Tom Cruise's character like dies and he dies in this horrible plane crash. And it was an amazing sequence, and they actually like shot it in like a a jet that was like one of those like vomit comets or whatever they call it, where they sh- they put the jet up in up in the air and they do these crazy loop de loops or humpbacks, and it gives weightlessness, real weightlessness, and they and you can use that to make uh you know make uh, interesting looking shots, and so the scene where the plate is like spiraling out of control, him and uh, the female lead in, in the movie are like spinning around and they're like flying around and slamming into the walls of this plane. And it's just crazy. And it looks amazing. And it was this fabulous, you know, classic Tom Cruise action beat where it's like, what is Tom Cruise going to do next? Well, this one, he's going to be like weightless in a plash in a crashing plane. And it really looked like he was, and it was a fabulous bit. And then the movie never even came close to, not even topping it, but just matching it in terms of the action. It was just awful, the rest of it. So that was a movie I would not recommend. It was a terrible movie. I'm relieved that we're not getting any more mummies. Some of those other Dark Universe movies sounded like they had potential, which is kind of sad. But uh, yeah, I, uh, rest in peace, undead mummies. <laughs> but if you do ever see this film on TV... And it's the beginning of the movie. I would say stick around until you see that sequence or look for it on YouTube. That part was really, really cool. 
It's just that the rest of the movie didn't come close to matching it. Yeah. I don't even remember that sequence, so oh, I'm trusting you in this. I'm trusting you. That scene was great. I'm sure it was. As uh, soon as yes. we came up with that category, that was that what, was what came, came to mind. To mind. Yeah. All right. For our next category, this was a year of a lot of good first-time performances, first-time uh, actors giving some very good performances. And so we wanted to do best performance from a first-time actor. Uh, and for me, uh, this was... A prize that belonged to Talia Webster from Good Time, which is available for rent right now. Uh, she plays Crystal, who is the teenager in the Queen's house that Robert P- Pattinson's character Connie lies his way into while on the run trying to rescue his brother from jail. Pattinson is mesmerizing in Good Time. It is really like is one of the best lead acting performances of the year. Um, and uh, much of what he's doing is about like actively dismantling whatever remains of his kind of teen idleness. Uh, he still, Connie still looks like Robert Pattinson, though he does, he's already much worse for the wear. Um, and during the film, he gives himself the world's worst die job. It's very impressive. And, uh, you know, during all of this, like Webster more than holds the screen next to him. Um, she's this teenager who's living in her grandmother's house and apparently like stays up all night talking with her friends and eating chicken nuggets and is like, like largely free range, uh, and kind of isolated. And the movie like lays out this home life so efficiently and then lays out why she allows herself to kind of go along with this stranger who comes into his, her house, who's super untrustworthy, like lays out why she goes along with him anyway, because she's bored and because she's kind of lonely and because he's company, even though he is incredibly sketchy. Uh, she's funny and she's this combination of like savvy... And very naive that makes you so alarmed for her and so worried about what's going to happen to her in Connie's company. And I think there is this moment where uh, he makes a move on her basically to kind of like blocks to, to avert, uh, avert her attention from something else. And I think like it is a moment that I just kind of covered my eyes because you're just like you want her to run away. Um, and I think that there's really something great about just the combination of like humor and vulnerability uh, that that Webster as an actress brings to this role. She really stands out. And I think even in this movie that is so centered on Pattinson and so kind of like driven by him, she's very memorable. So that would be my pick for best first time, uh, best role from a first time actor. All right. Excellent choice. My pick is to me, it's like the slam dunk obvious one. I'm sure uh, listeners will be expecting one of us to have mentioned it. Brooklyn Prince from The Florida Project. Uh, uh, this is the new film from Sean Baker, uh, chronicling the lives of some uh, people who live in this seedy motel in Orlando, Florida, and largely following uh, these children. The main main one named Mooney is played by Brooklyn Prince, sort of a child's eye view of this world, which they sort of treat as this kind of magical wonderland, even though it's a seedy motel. And as the film progresses, we discover there's some pretty dark and depressing stuff going on sort of just out of Mooney's view. But this is just an incredible performance from a, of a, a child actor, an untrained actor, you know, um, child performances, even when they're good, I think there are, there we sort of, there are certain things we expect from them, you know, very sort of like, uh, you know, children with like big eyes and incredibly adorable and just giving these very sweet and heartbreaking and like, you know, kind of performances. And this is like the opposite of that. 
Moody, she can be cute. She can be sweet at times, but she can also be nasty and mean. And... The first scene with her is one that's like very deliberately like, like, wow, this is not a sweet child. Right. This is like putting like, like, just like, just like putting a torch to that idea of what a sweet kid in a movie should be. Um, and just, and is just like free of all of the ticks that you would expect from a child actor. I mean, it really just seems like they have found this, like this like adorably irrepressible rambunctious child and just let her run wild in this movie. And, uh, it's absolutely, absolutely, um, incredible. Uh, Sean Baker, uh, seems to be in my mind, maybe one of the best directors around about, uh, in terms of getting, these kind of authentic performances out of untrained actors. I think Tangerine is another example, not of child actors, but like first time actors. It just, I don't know what his technique is. I don't know how he does it, but clearly he is incredibly good at getting untrained actors to like reveal things, to be natural, be in the moment, to be real, to be just fascinating on camera. That's like his superpower as a director. And, um, I mean, most of the actors in this movie, except for Willem Dafoe, who is the one who gets all the awards attention, which I feel in some ways is kind of it's, unfair it's weird, and wrong yeah. and weird, even though he's great in the movie, too. It's just sort of funny that, like, all these incredible untrained actors are great in the movie, and the, pe- the guy who gets the attention is the professional actor. I don't know. If you haven't seen The Florida Project, one of my favorite movies of the year, hugely recommended, and, you know... For all I know, we'll never see Brooklyn Prince in another movie again, and that would be okay. I think – I have no idea if she's an actor. I just think in this movie, she gives one of the most incredible child first-time performances I've ever seen. Um, I do think she she does have other things lined up. She's definitely oh, she does. an actor. Yeah. Okay. But I, and I, I wanted to give another sh- a shout-out to also like Bria Vinata, who yes. plays her mom, her mom. Who is also a also fantastic. cast off of Instagram right. where she was making – uh, pot themed uh, Etsy products. <laughs> You'd never be able to tell from her <laughs> and, performance. And I, I, they're both like really kind of like remarkable first time performances, definitely. All right, let's move on to our third third of these categories in this section. Yes, best music moments. What do you got? Oh, I agonized over this because there are some really good. Music this was a very competitive this category this like, year. I was like Dave Matthews Band and Ladies Ladybird. I've had the time of my life and Get Out, Love My Way, and Call Me by Your Name. But let's be honest, if 2017 belonged to one musical artist, it was the late, great John Denver, whose music has turned up in an unignorable number of movies this year, from the Kingsman sequel to Free Fire to my pick here, Logan Lucky. Uh, you know, while there's, there's another use of a Denver song this year that I might like more on balance, there's no denying the brutal and wonderfully tear-jerking centrality of Denver's Take Me Home Country Road in Steven Soderbergh's NASCAR heist movie. It's a song that Channing Tatum's character is talking about with his daughter at the start. You know, he's offering it up. They're talking about the origins of the song, offering it up as his possible one that she could perform at her beauty pageant. She says, nah, I want something more contemporary. And then by the time we get to that pageant, and she drops her planned act and sings the song a cappella. It's not just like an absolutely like heart-wrenching moment. It's and a great callback. It also speaks to the kind of underlying bittersweet sense of place that the movie has, where its characters are extremely fond of where they're from and like very rooted in where they're from. But at the same time, there's this real sense of kind of what 
uh, an economic dead end it's become. I think there's not there. There's a reason that its characters spend hours and hours driving across state lines. Like driving across state lines is a big part of Logan Lucky, and it's a part because that's where work is. You know, they have to drive to Charlotte to find jobs and things. And I think that just like that that sense of like it is. This movie's filled with regional details about West Virginia. Uh, and yet takes place uh, in Charlotte, <laughs> a lot of it. It, it. It's for a reason. And it, it's just like rooted in this like deep, deep and genuine love of West Virginia. And at the same time, this kind of sense of like the pain of it uh, in a way that is really wonderful. So that is my, I will say, kind of defining music moment of 2017. Mm, it's a fine how, choice. How about you, Matt? Well, mine is from a, a little scene movie. This could have also been my great scene in a bad and forgettable movie. And uh, the movie is Killing Gunther. That was the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger oh, film, yes. the Taron Killam comedy starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as a hitman. This was a very disappointing movie for me because, well, it was an Arnold Schwarzenegger comedy from Taron Killam. That to me, I mean, that should have been my number one movie of the year. Uh, it was a huge disappointment. Um, Arnold was barely in it. The idea is sort of like all these, it's like a mockumentary with all these hitmen trying to kill this great hitman played by Schwarzenegger, who's you know doesn't show up until the end of the movie. Um, Taron Killam plays uh, one of the other assassins. There's a whole group of assassins who are trying to kill Gunther throughout the movie, but we just we never even see him. And uh, it's just not funny. It was, a, it was a big disappointment. But the end of the movie, part of Arnold's uh, uh, part that we see at the end is his character, for reasons that I can't explain, and it doesn't matter has recorded a country song. He's trying to become a, a country singer. And so my musical moment of the year is Arnold Schwarzenegger singing, if you want to call it that, <laughs> a country song called Earthquake Love. And uh, I'll play a clip of it here uh, after this segment. You will not believe how horrible. I mean, <laughs> the worst Arnold Schwarzenegger impressionist trying to mock Arnold doing a country song could not have done a worse job. It was so funny. In a movie that was otherwise so unfunny. Oh, it's magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. I love it. Um, don't don't see Killing Gunther, but <laughs> I'll play the clip and you should like go on YouTube and find Earthquake Love and listen to the whole song. It's it's a riot. Do you have any other runner ups in any of these categories that we've I think talked I've about? I've mentioned some of the music ones. There were a lot of good music moments this year. Uh, the one you left out that I um, I also loved was the use of uh, Led Zeppelin's Hammer of the Gods and Thor Ragnarok. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Both times they use it in that movie is just... Awesome. And uh, great scene in a bad or forgettable movie. I mean, great is stretching it, but the scene where Anthony Hopkins explains the history of uh, the, the secret history of the Transformers in the Transformers the last night is so horrible. It's like transcendently, awfully, hilariously great. I, you know, I never saw that Transformers movie, sadly. I know it was discussed on our last episode of yes. the podcast. Oh, one quick, one more music moment that I wanted to shout okay. out. Uh, the Lovers, which is like a very little scene movie, as Azal Jacobs' movie. Um, and it's, I think, very wonderful. There's a scene towards the end in which Tracy Lett sings, It Must Be Love. And it is wonderful and really poignant. Uh, you should see The Lovers. It's streaming on Amazon, I believe, and is very worth a look. And I never thought I'd feel this way The way I feel Ooh. I've hardly seen you last week I've been overly occupied So you're screwing your wife now? As if Alright, we're getting towards the end of the Swoovies, like all awards shows This one goes on way too long <laughs> 
our next two categories. Let's get to uh, most rewatchable movie. Mm. The most rewatchable movie of 2017. I hope you've watched this movie more than once, Allison. I have watched it more than once. Excellent. Yes. What does your Sfuvi award go to in this category? Well, it goes to your name. Uh, my name? A, my, my name. Your name. Your name, the movie. Oh. Yes. It's a very terrible who's on first. Uh, available for rents. Uh, I will say this also. This year, I've watched like multiple movies multiple times, mostly for work. I feel like this year more than any other year. That's like kind of happened. But Your Name, I have watched multiple times for pleasure. Uh, this would be Makoto Shinkai's Body Swap Teen Romance. It was the highest grossing anime film of all time. Made a much smaller footprint here in the US. Mostly because, I don't know, we still don't know what to do with movies that are not primary animated movies that are primarily aimed at kids this one is for teens and teens at heart and it is just this like ecstatically big-hearted tear-stained uh movie that i adored it's really beautiful it is extremely emotional it is the equivalent movie-wise of a carly ray jepson chorus uh and i just I, i i thought it was so well done um just like as a movie about these two uh, a country girl and a city boy who start finding each like waking up in each other's bodies for these like bits of time and kind of start understanding who the other is by leaving notes for each other. And it becomes, it's both like, it starts off very wacky and then becomes kind of sweet and then becomes this grand thing about uh, an act of a try- trying to save a community. And uh, I loved it. It was so swoon-worthy and wonderful. And I, I think that it's one of those movies that creates a world that you want to revisit. And I definitely have. I would highly recommend it. It is available for rent. All right. My pick is, uh, well, it's the obvious choice because it is the, it's the most rewatchable movie because it's the most rewatched in this house. I've seen it way too many times, but I'm enjoying it every single time. It is the Lego Batman movie, my daughter's favorite movie on the planet. Uh, I have a two-year-old uh, daughter. Uh, I guess I have another daughter, but she... It's not quite in the movie stage She's yet. only seven weeks old, and she's just refuses to watch movies with me. <laughs> it's like, dude, you're seven weeks old. Let's go. We're going to watch Sallow. Come on. She's just not feeling it. But Kids these days. Kids these days. Spans. Am I right? Seriously. Um, the two-year-old uh, is obsessed or with the Lego Batman movie. And, um, you know, I put it on one time because she loves Batman. And I put it on one time thinking uh, – a couple of months ago thinking, ah, uh, she'll watch for 15 minutes and then she'll get bored. She watched the whole thing. She didn't move. And then she wanted to watch it again. And we watched it probably like eight times now. And, you know, that was a movie I enjoyed when it came out. Um, but watching it on repeat, you get to see – some of the jokes you missed, you get to see um, sort of the attention to detail that's put into it in the backgrounds, in some of the jokes, the subtle jokes, and also just what a good looking movie it is. I mean, I know like the design of a Lego movie is that it's sort of charmingly uh, sort of lo-fi, but the cinematography and like the color is really beautiful in that movie, especially when you compare it to like other like direct-to-video Lego movies, which I've seen some of. Because there's a lot of, like, if you want to watch more Lego superhero stuff, there is stuff on Netflix and you can rent stuff. And those movies are often very charming and very sweet, um, but they look much more like your typical kids cartoon. Like, Lego Batman movie is a good-looking movie. And uh, the music is good. Will Arnett's performance as as Lego Batman is incredible. He's got a nine-pack. Um, yeah, I've seen that movie eight times. I haven't gotten bored with it yet. I'm always... <laughs> 
I just consider myself lucky that like my my daughter wants to watch the Lego Batman movie over and over as opposed to like the Emoji movie where I'd be like I don't know I'd be in dire straits if that was my life. So yeah, that's my uh, most rewatchable movie of the year. Um, we wanted to do a related, sort of related category to this, but I do feel like it's a little different, which is to be like, what is the movie that felt felt like the best comfort food to you, especially in a turbulent year? Sure. Um, and for that, you know, Matt, uh, for various reasons this year, I found great satisfaction in watching movies about angry women breaking things and killing people. Oh, really? Yes. I can't imagine why. I can't imagine why either. Atomic Blonde, loved it. Yeah. Logan, enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> but... The most comforting movie for me in this particular, by this particular rubric, was The Villainous, a Korean action film that is available for rent mm. right now. I will say no single movie scene of the year really brought me as much satisfaction as this, this, the start of the climactic action sequence in The Villainous, uh, in which its main character, Suki, played by Kim Ok Bin, uh, she runs down a speeding bus in a car, like poised on the hood of the car, steering it towards a speeding bus. And then she leaps onto the back of the bus. She's wielding two hatchets. Um, she like holds on to the bus with one of them and starts swinging back and forth and then smashes in through the side window. And the camera follows her. The director of this movie, like Atomic Blonde, was a former uh, stuntman and just shoots action in this totally different way that is wild to see. Um, and the camera just follows her inside as she like smashes through the window and then starts using a hatchet on all of the henchmen inside and throwing them very through like the back windshield and all of that. It is wonderful. Uh, also, this movie is like both half incredibly brutal and like really uh, audaciously shot action movie and then half super teary melodrama. I loved it. Uh, it, it kind of borrows very heavily from La Femme Nikita, borrows a bit from Kill Bill. Uh, it borrows, I'd say, heavily from a sensibility of a Korean drama, uh, like just like super soapy Korean drama. Uh, there is a scene in which the main character is getting married and she is in her wedding dress. And then she has to pick up a sniper rifle in the bathroom. And it was just perfect. It was really wonderful. Um, so I highly recommend The Villainous. It was really one of my favorite films of the year uh, and then kind of came and went for a lot of people. But I think, especially if you're interested in people doing action sequences differently, I, I think that like the approach to this movie in terms of just how to move the camera or what the camera can do during an action sequence is really unusual. So that was my comfort food of the year. That sounds awesome. I haven't seen that movie. I'm going to try to have to track that one down. Um, I don't really have a like explanation why this m- movie this year was particularly comforting. I just found this movie very comforting, very enjoyable. I've, I have seen it twice already. I would watch it again and I could see myself watching it every couple of months or years. And it is uh, The Disaster Artist, the movie about the making of The Room, the notoriously bad uh, movie. I love The Room and I thought that the creators of this movie – Particularly James Franco, the writer, or excuse me, the director, and also the star, as Tommy Wiseau, just did a fabulous job of honoring the awfulness of the room, but also uh, treating Tommy like this, uh, you know, a hero in his own mind, if nowhere else. And um, yeah, I think it's a, you know, I don't know if it's a a masterpiece, but I think it's a, it's a very well done movie, a very funny movie, and a very sweet movie in that it is about this relationship between. Tommy, played by James Franco, and um, his friend Greg, played by Dave Franco, um, and their relationship, the ups and downs as they try to make it in Hollywood and then uh, decide to prove themselves by making their own movie and 
you, we all know how that turned out. But yeah, that's a movie that um, I found, you know, uh, uh, a very comforting, very sweet um, and have watched already. Uh, I watched it. We saw it at Toronto and then I watched it again on a screener, even though I had other things I probably should have been watching. I just really wanted to spend time with those characters and really enjoyed it and could see myself going back to it again in the very near future. I don't like that movie as much as you do, Aww. but I do love every scene where they're shooting the movie. Sure. is pretty delightful. Yeah. Well, here we are at the end of this movie's, the big categories. We've got uh, the La best. La Land. No, no, wait. No, wait. You guys, there was a mistake. I'm not joking. It's, I'm not joking. Yeah, this that, is not a joke. Yeah. Well. Anyway. No, we're probably not going to have that kind of drama, sadly. No. But we are going to talk about our favorite movies of the year. And then also our favorite streaming movies of the year. We are a streaming podcast. We're about streaming. And yep. certainly this year was, I'd say the first year in which that was like a sizable chunk of significant movies came out exclusively to streaming. Yeah, this is the first year I feel like where we could do like a best streaming or straight to streaming movie and not just have it be like garbage. Right. And next year, Netflix is slated to release 80 original <laughs> movies. Sounds about right. This is terrifying. <laughs> so. We're going to have to put out... The, you know, this podcast has been like bi-weekly for like five years. It's going to be coming out every single day yes, next year. Basically. It's the only way to keep up with everything. <laughs> so uh, in anticipation of that terrifying flow of content, <laughs> that fire hose of content, streaming content, uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, the best streaming movie as well. But let's talk about just the full-on best movie of the year first. Matt, what is your pick for best movie of 2017? My favorite movie was Lady Bird. Um, it was it's a uh, Greta Gerwig's. You know, it's it's a it's, it's a coming of age movie, I suppose. But it's like it's like the best possible version of a very cliched, uh, cliched story or cliched genre that you've seen many times before. You know, I, I've just, I've said uh, elsewhere, it's like the coming of age movie comes of age. It's like a, it finally like it's like the mature version of of that kind of film. Uh, with just an incredible level of care and humor and warmth, intelligence. Uh, Greta Gerwig's screenplay I thought was one of the best of the year, if not the best of the year. The cast is great. Saoirse Ronan as Lady Bird. Laurie Metcalf as um, the mom of this troubled uh, teenager. I mean, but I could have – I could literally just list everyone in the movie. Timothy Chalamet. I already said I, I wasn't a huge fan of Call Me By Your Name. I'll I'll be real. Here's you ready for a hot take? Ooh, bring it. He is better in Lady Bird Damn. than he is in Call Me by Your Name. There's a hot take for wow. you that I believe sizzling on fire, burning up. Prove me wrong. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, just I guess maybe not the most ambitious movie or complex movie that I saw in 2017, but the one that uh, I certainly had the most emotional reaction to. That I thought from start to finish just made – like was every choice in the movie was right. I can't find a problem with it. I can't find a, a flaw with it. And um, probably the one I've recommended to the most people. Uh, yeah, it's, that's 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 my pick. Yeah. Lady Bird. My pick is another movie we've mentioned. Uh, and it's The Emoji like, Movie. The Emoji Movie, the best movie of the year. Yep. No, it is The Florida Project. Oh, okay. Which is currently in theaters. And it was really like – there is no movie that I think just kind of like – destroyed me quite so thoroughly mm -hmm. i think there's just something about how sean baker mixes this bubble that is childhood but not a sanctuary i don't think that there's anything about that that really makes you feel like mooney and her friends are in any way protected you know from the harsh realities of life but they're kind of indifferent towards it for a while like childhood provides this kind of blissful 
uh, indifference. And, and like, it is both like a really insightful movie about childhood and how children play and how they think about the world. And then also one about poverty and economic instability. And like it, it both, I think in a very non-condescending way about how people live with it just like as another kind of aspect of their lives, but also about how it is this like bit of dread that just hangs over all of these characters in particular, the two main characters. And I think that like it has such empathy, but also it's so non, it does not sentimentalize uh, the kind no. of straits that its characters are in. It is just like, I, I, I think, and I, it has an ending, which I will not spoil if you haven't seen it. It's a divisive ending, but I have to say, I think it's like one of the best cinematic moments of the year. I love I the just, ending. Yeah. It, it, especially this is a movie that takes place very deliberately in the shadow of this kind of corporatized uh, encapsulation of, uh, childhood, right? Sure. And of, uh, of kind of like this feeling of childhood and, and uh, Disney, which is always like there in the background. These characters are on the outskirts of Disney. And I think the way in which the ending uses that is just like devastating and amazing. Uh, I, I think it's just an incredible movie. Sean Baker is someone whose movies I've always admired and he keeps getting better and better. And this one I think is like just a real genuinely phenomenal achievement. Uh, I, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the Florida Project. Please check it out. Fabulous choice. It was on my top ten list as well. All right, let's do best straight to streaming movie. You want me to go first? Yeah. Well, I have a feeling we may conjoin in this one. Well, that's what I that's what I think too. I mean, to me, there's even though there are actually some very uh, very qualified contenders, like to be the this the runaway winner. Although maybe we don't agree, was still Okja. Yes, we, yes, this is the we are. We're Look, together on this. There's one joint movie award winner yes. this year. Well, because my I sound like I've been screaming for <laughs> a year because I have. Why don't you talk okay, and I'll, I'll just take, I'll take join the lead it. on this. Yeah. I think that the thing that is like so really remarkable and memorable about Okja is just like how it doesn't fit into any category at all. No, it is super Korean in sensibility, but it also features like a bunch of like uh, international actors. It is a, a super is a broad comedy and a really sharp satire at the same time. Uh, it is a kid's adventure that is also astonishingly dark. Yes. <laughs> and it is a movie that is like a, a kind of like blatantly uh, is like blatantly critical of kind of where globalism and capitalism are taking us while at the same time kind of suggesting there's no way to stop it. And at the same time is the product of a company. It's product of that, one of the biggest yes, entertainment companies that is feeding in the world. As, as the corporation in Okja does feeding identical products to everyone around the everyone world. around the world. Yes. <laughs> I just like the fact that it exists is astonishing. And I just feel like it's many contradictions are part of what makes it so remarkable. Like it is so bleak and like hilarious at the same time it is touching but it is also just brutal in terms of uh its approach to so many of the kind of worldwide systems that it portrays and it has an adorable cgi animal and then wow does it tell show you some things involving that cgi animal that you will never be able to take out of your head yep uh, it's a great movie and i feel like it's the movie that Gives you hope that even in this world in which all content is slowly being consumed by either the Disney Fox mega corporation, newly existing, or or Netflix, uh, that at least there will be some interesting movies to come out of it. That's, I mean, absolutely everything you said. Totally agree. I would just add, I mean, in terms of all those things you said, it's like there is no studio that would make this movie. 
in ter- because of all the reasons you described. Yeah. Like no no studio would let you make a kids movie this dark. No studio would make let you make you know a, a this a big broad action movie that also has these incredibly disturbing moments as well. For whatever reason, Netflix did. So it's like, yeah, if we're going to live in this Netflix world, at least they're letting great filmmakers do interesting, weird, edgy stuff like this. Totally agree. Did you have any honorable mentions for this category? Mudbound, I would say. I think Mudbound totally. is a great movie. I think it's 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 funny because it seems like such a shoe-in for a kind of like, like an, an awards – I don't think it's awards bait. I think that's being unfair to it. But it seems like a very awardsy movie. And I feel like in some ways the fact that it's coming out of Netflix is hurting it because – uh, I think, like, especially the Academy is still not sure what it thinks of Netflix and, like, Netflix's approach to releasing movies on streaming simultaneously. Uh, and I, I just, like, I do feel like, and I've talked about Mudbound with Eric Cohn on a podcast that when you were out. And I do think that, like, it's just, like, it's a more radical movie in terms of its approach and in terms of its shifting point of view than I think it looks from the outside. And it's really, it's not work like it's not kind of the vegetables of movies i think it's a very skillfully made movie and a really cinematic one that's a great choice i wanted to give a shout out to a movie that like i don't think it's like a best of the year but again it's the kind of thing where like oh netflix is starting even the smaller movies are starting to be better and that's gerald's game was a movie that i really loved um and it's like a perfect it's also a perfect streaming movie like it's a small little movie mostly set in one room so it, it doesn't need a big screen to be enjoyed it's a perfect movie for like a date night at home because it's it's it very well acted by Carlo Gugino and Bruce Greenwood and uh really disturbing and well done like it's just like a really good movie like for years we've like it's like Netflix had its TV game in order but their movies were terrible yeah even the supposed like awards bait movies were like this is not very good. So I'm just it's, I appreciate the fact that there's they're starting to get their act together. Yes, eighty movies, Matt. Eighty movies. Oh boy, year. can't wait. We'll review every single one. Now the last, uh, the last Spoovy Award every year is the best movie. Of the following year. So we'll be giving out the best movie of 2018 right now. I have the movies for 2017, oh, Allison. I was going to ask you. Would you like to know what we picked as the best? <laughs> because we this is always wrong. We yes, always, we're always like, usually way, way off. Yes. We've mentioned both of them already on this podcast in negative terms. Uh-oh. Our, All right, let's hear it. Our picks for the best movies of 2017 last year at this time were... Untitled Detroit Project from Catherine Bigelow. <laughs> that was my pick, I'm sure. And yeah. Baby Driver. Oh, wow. Those were our picks for the best movies you know, of 2017. I, I understand why we picked them. Sure. But yes. <laughs> really what this award does every year is shows us how expectations are bad. Yes. So what is your pick, Allison, for the best movie of 2018? Oh, it's a film that I'm already pretty sure is going to be a mess given like how news has trickled out. But it's it's filled with everything I like and it's by someone I like. <laughs> That would be Annihilation, I know, uh, directed by Alex Garland, the novelist turned filmmaker who did Ex Machina, based on a book by Jeff Vandermeer, who I really like, a book that seems extraordinarily unadaptable, which is part of, I think, the problem that we've got here. But, you know, and the cast is incredible, like Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Lee, Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, Oscar Isaac, like it has 
all of the things I like. It is like this weird, dreamy, mysterious sci-fi scenario in which uh, these women are like scientists who go into this disaster zone uh, to try and like recover evidence of what happened. Uh, and then, uh, yes, do I feel like this is, prob- is going to be a problem? Do I feel like maybe Paramount Pictures is not up for making a barely narrative uh, sci-fi meditation? Sure. Yes, absolutely. But in the meantime, before it goes wrong by seeing it, I am really looking forward to it. What is your pick, Matt? Well, shout out an honorable mention to Mary Magdalene, that amazing yes. looking movie where Rooney Mara plays Mary Magdalene and Joaquin Phoenix is Jesus. You mean current couple Joaquin Phoenix what? and Rooney Mara? What? Yes. Also, no matter how that movie is, we'll always have the amazing kind of uh, – on the set photos of them smoking cigarettes while in costumes. Yes. If you haven't seen that photo, so find good. it online. It's amazing. So, good. so shout out to that. Cause that's definitely going to be the number two movie <laughs> and shout out to Steven Spielberg's ready player one, which will definitely be the number three movie. <laughs> but my number one is, I mean, it's sort of like selfishly. It's the movie that I'm most looking forward to seeing with my daughter is the Incredibles two, the sequel to, of course, the Incredibles, the Brad Bird Pixar classic, which I love. I have showed, Riley, The Incredibles, and she she generally liked that. She wasn't one of her favorite movies, but she's still very young, and I'm wondering if by the time The Incredibles 2 comes out next year, maybe we could go to the theater and see it together, and so I'm really looking forward to that one. Looking over the list of movies, there weren't a ton of other options that jumped out at me. You know, Annihilation is a great pick, except you've been hearing... All of these troubling stories. Very, very Absolutely. troubling stories, but I'm going to... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast in with The Incredibles 2 and hope that I at least get a movie I liked. You know, As opposed to some of those <laughs> of, of all of the Pixar movies, years. that is the one that most invites a sequel. Absolutely, that most asks for one. Yes, uh, a lot of the other ones have been getting sequels anyway. But that one, you know, I could see it working. Well, those were the 2017 Swoovie Awards. Uh, Long may they last. Yes, and not be last, proven wrong. Hopefully, longer than my voice. Yeah. Well, so that brings us to the behind the eight ball section, in which every episode we bring you three movies that are new to streaming or TV shows. Uh, two listener recommendations and one title chosen randomly by number from our my lists. And Matt, you're going to go first this time. It's been a little while. Do you still remember how to do this? No. Oh, well, let's give it a try anyway. Okay. Give me three new releases. First up on Netflix, two seasons, two full seasons of Ash versus Evil Dead. This is the long-awaited return to the Evil Dead franchise by star Bruce Campbell and series creator Sam Raimi, who directed the pilot for the series which is about obnoxious, egomaniacal, undead killer Ash 30 years after the events of the old series, getting mixed up once again with the Necronomicon, the unholy book of the dead. I'm really excited because this series is now on Netflix, which means I can watch it. The show airs on Stars, which I don't have. I watched the first two episodes. I was able to get copies of the first two episodes, which were great. I really enjoyed them, but then wasn't able to watch anymore. So... I definitely have an Ash versus Evil Dead binge in my future that is available on Netflix. Next up on Hulu, one of the best feel-good documentaries I saw this year, Step. I'm surprised it's already on Hulu, but it is. It is about a Step team at a Baltimore high school. It's a classic kind of underdog sports documentary. You're introduced to all these young women, most of whom have very hard lives living in the inner city in Baltimore. We see how being as a part of this team really helps them, you know, find their voices, find uh, an outlet, um, find motivation, discipline, all the things they need in their lives. And it also helps them as they try to get their uh, high school degrees and apply to college. And it's 
it's a I really did you see this movie, Allison? Um, I have not seen it yet. I was uh, excited to see it turn up on screening. Yeah, on streaming. Yeah, it's great. The stepping sequences are really cool. The competitions are very exciting. But it's really about these characters, these these young women. You really root for them. You really care for them and want them to succeed. And uh, you know, this could have been another like most timely movie. Now that I think about it, I didn't even consider it. But I'm glad that it is available on streaming. It is called Step. It is on Hulu. Finally, on Amazon, a Arnold Schwarzenegger streaming update. Total Recall is now available on Amazon Prime. It's Paul Verhoeven's excellent sci-fi film of mind-bending proportions with Schwarzenegger playing a humble construction worker in a dystopian future who finds out he may be a brainwashed spy. I have a lot of favorite Arnold movies besides Killing Gunther. That's at the bottom of the list. (laughs) But this may be... His, uh, my favorite, you know, it's like between this and the Terminator are my all time favorites. So total recall on Amazon. Okay. Give me two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Travis English in Fountain Valley, California. And he writes, whether you're watching the new Star Trek or not, that's a totally different discussion. Deep Space Nine and Voyager are both on Netflix right now. My take on these shows, they have the best managers in television. I was, (laughs) I was studying management in business school when my wife and I watched Deep Space Nine, and I realized Avery Brooks's Captain Cisco character is a wonderful boss. He'd be a great guy to work for. He's supportive, decisive, and principled. He's tough but fair. He's really good. And Kate Mulgrew's Captain Janeway may be even better. If you're a boss of any kind or a parent, these two are worth spending time with. So that's Deep Space Nine and Voyager on Netflix. And that's a recommendation from Travis in Fountain Valley, California. Thank you, Travis. And we have a recommendation here from David in Reseda, who writes, Currently on Amazon Prime is Taxi, the 1998 Luc Besson pen thriller that may be France's own Fast and Furious with three sequels. The box office mega hit is a straightforward buddy action comedy as it is very immature. The camera ogles both the cars and the women when it isn't zipping through the streets of Marseille. Excellent stunts. Rapid-fire jokes alleviate the sexism and dangerously juvenile treatment of guns. It's fun, very French, and only 90 minutes. So that is Taxi on Amazon Prime. And that is a recommendation from David in Reseda. Thank you, David. All right. Give me one from your My List. You gave me number one. Number one on my My List right now is The Twilight Zone, the classic sci-fi series. I was doing a project that required me to write about sci-fi and... I had to watch a couple of Twilight Zone episodes, and so I I just added it to my my list so that it would be readily available for reference. And I made me go, you know, I haven't watched the Twilight Zone in a while, and so I left it on there so I could maybe watch a couple of episodes this week before I delete it from my my list. Probably by the next episode, it will be gone, but for now, it is number one. Allison, are you ready? Yes. All right. Let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay. New to Amazon is Free Indeed, a movie I've been wanting to see for a while. It's a 2015 film from Jake Mahaffey set in the world of evangelical storefront churches, not a world that gets put on camera all that often, certainly, starring David Harewood and Edwina Finley as two attendees of a church. Uh, And it becomes this kind of story about faith healing, a kind of tragedy about faith healing. Uh, But I've heard amazing things about this movie. It premiered at Venice in 2015 and then kind of as finally available for streaming. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. That's on Amazon. 
new to Filmstruck is Dawson City Frozen Time. Uh, Bill Morrison's documentary about film and history and the passing of time. Uh, it's, compri- it's comprised of footage from these 500 plus silent film reels that were unearthed uh, in this town up by the Arctic Circle in the Yukon Territory that during the gold rush was kind of the last stop of film distribution uh, at the time. So all of these films would make their way up there and then get buried up there. And so a big favorite of the cinephile crowd, this one, and it is streaming on Filmstruck if you want to check it out. And finally, new to Shudder is Better Watch Out, Chris Peckover's delightfully mean a twist on home alone among other things uh, about a babysitter played by uh olivia de young uh, who's taking care of two young ish boys they're just old enough to cause complications here uh levi miller and ed oxenbold uh this movie really got a lot of kind of acclaim on the genre film circuit and then really quietly rushed in and out of theaters and now it is streaming on shutter so you can find it there that's better watch out okay oh Allison, I have some very urgent and important breaking news. Oh, tell me. Catwoman is streaming on Netflix also. Um, it's very tempting. Halle Berry Catwoman. Yes. Uh, I'm not, Pitoff. I'm, yes. I'm not going to switch off one of my Pitoff. for Pitoff's masterpiece. Pitoff. It is a, it is a pretty good director. Name. Pitoff. All right. How about two listener recommendations? <laughs> All right. Pitoff. First up, we have one from Chris in Kennebunkport who writes, recently watched the amazing film, rat, the amazing rat film on Amazon. Thanks to a tweet by Allison looking for docs to check out. I was browsing through the responses and I kept seeing rat film. I'd never heard of it, but thought I should check it out. And so glad I did. It was definitely an experience. Uh, like if Errol Morris and Harmony Corinne had a baby and that baby made a movie. My suggestion would be to watch it with a sound way up. Thanks, Allison. You're welcome, Chris and Kennebunk Part. <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of rat film. It really is, especially if you are interested in films that like depart from kind of standard doc form. It is really like a, a kind of essay of a film, uh, and it tackles these really diverse topics and weaves them together. It's it's fascinating, um, and I'm glad to hear that that is for rent on Amazon. Um, and then we have a second recommendation from Rebecca in Madison, Wisconsin, who writes, I've been enjoying SVU for a while now, and I've just finished a film that's just as lovely, and, that's just lovely, and I have to recommend it. It's called Bad Lucky Goat, directed by Samir Oliveros. It's currently streaming on Amazon Prime. It's a story about squabbling teenage siblings, Corn and Rita, who hit a goat with a family truck. This is the start of a misadventure a la Weekend at Bernie's with the goat in the title role, where our heroes do whatever they can to earn enough money for repairs before mom and dad find out about the mishap. It's set on Providence Island in the Caribbean that has gorgeous locales and a rich Creole culture that's a delight to watch. There's an unironic use of cassette tapes. I think it's set in the present day. Local gangs, motorbikes, harmonicas, great performances from the teenage stars, and a sense of whimsy that reminds me a little of Hunt for the Wilder People. It has a very specific sense of place, but anyone who has a brother or a sister will be able to recognize the relationship between Corn, short for Cornelius, and Rita. It's older sister versus younger brother, but when hiding trouble from mom and dad, it's them versus the world. P.S. writes Rebecca, this would make a brilliant double feature with Taika Waititi's boy, another set of siblings, albeit younger with a much more tragic set of circumstances to overcome, loaded with whimsy, closer to magical realism, and also a goat. That's also streaming on Amazon Prime, along with YTT's Eagle vs. Shark and What We Do in Shadows. P. 
HTTPS, oh. you know, in honor of Thor, just do a Taika Waititi episode. Hunt for the Wilder People is streaming on, Am- on Hulu and is rentable on Amazon. Uh, thank you for those, Rebecca. And, uh, you know, we should t- take the Taika recommendation into account. Uh, certainly, we are both big fans of his. All right. And how about one? My list. You give me number six. Uh, number six on my list is Lagan. This would be, I think, like the maybe the most successful Bollywood incursion into mainstream uh, kind of like American theatrical releasing, uh, certainly in the past. And also definitely the most successful cricket epic ever made uh, movie wise, you know, about uh, a small village in India during a time of British colonization in which uh, after the British attempt to raise the tax on the citizens, uh, they oppose it. The villagers oppose it. And uh, there is a challenge to a game of cricket, which the villagers are totally unfamiliar with. Uh, if they can defeat the British, the tax will be repealed. So it's both a great sports movie and a great movie about uh, colonization. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I haven't seen it since I think it came out and I've really been wanting to see it again. So I was happy to see it end up on Netflix. Uh, so you too can add it to your my list. All right. Let's talk about listeners choice options for our next episode. Oh, we got some good ones. We do. I really three I'm big titles. About how this is going to go. Three big titles, all on Netflix. Two originals. <laughs> I don't know the biggest. That's the gonna biggest. Buy. The biggest and best. Okay, to the last one, <clears> sure. I have the first one here. Yes, I think if any of our listeners are are savvy Netflix followers, and I imagine they are, if they're listening to this podcast, they can probably predict our first option, which is Bright. This is speaking of those eighty movies Netflix is releasing. This is really one of their biggest releases to date. This is Netflix. Trying to do like a blockbuster, a Hollywood big, big blockbuster. $90 million budget. A huge budget. Directed by David Ayer, who made Suicide Squad. One of the, you know, big, big directors written by uh, Max Landis. And starring Will Smith and Joel Edgerton. So this is a big movie. It comes out on December 22nd. So it's not out yet as we are uh, recording this, but we will have plenty of time to watch it if it wins. Here's the plot description. In an L.A. rife. Rife with interspecies tension. A human cop and his orc partner. Orc. There's orcs, Allison. Of course. They stumble on a powerful object and become embroiled. Embroiled in a prophesied turf war. What's the line? Fairy lives matter? Fairy lives don't matter, I think. Don't matter. I think is what Will Smith says. Will Smith plays, he's like a I, I don't know, can he be racist against fairies? It's a, a bigoted cop. He's a bigoted cop against, like, magical Supernatural, creatures. yes. Yeah. I, how can this go wrong? Who better <laughs> to tackle a delicate metaphor about racial pl- uh, police violence than Max David Landis. Ayer and Max yes. Landis. Yep. Um, so, yeah. Um, I don't know. Should we, I don't know what we would pair this with. We could do a Will Smith episode. That yeah, might be interesting. that could be good. We could do an orc episode. We could do a Max Landis we episode. We could do a Max Landis episode. <laughs> I'm sure he would let us know what he thought about it if we did. So that is a very strong option, number one. Bright, it'll be available on Netflix on December 22nd. Our second option, these are all Netflix options, uh, is already streaming. And it is uh, Errol Morris's first uh, Netflix original, a six-part miniseries, though it has also played as a full movie, a full very long movie elsewhere. Um 
And it is a kind of genre bending documentary. It is a documentary that uses like hybrid fictional techniques and uses some actors. It is about a mysterious, uh, the mysterious death of a, a scientist. It is about a Cold War program known, and you may be familiar with this one. It is certainly a favorite of fiction. MK Ultra, mm. the CIA, and experiments with LSD. Uh, it is, uh, you know, a kind of uh, apparently, from what I've read from multiple colleagues of ours, a masterpiece. Though I ask you, Matt. Is it possible for Errol Morris to have made a sprawling hybrid doc work without it being called a masterpiece by at least some people? You're right. That's inevitable. <laughs> it's inevitable. I want to know who at Netflix is obsessed with MK Ultra because it's a big part of Stranger Things, too. It's so, true. so who over there is like, we got to do more MK Ultra stuff, man. We got to get to the truth. Really, if only the CIA had known, they could have called it Plot Device, the, that program. Because it's <laughs> Operation really plot Operation device. Plot Device. Yep. Um, but I have not seen Wormwood yet. I, I have not either. either. I have not either. Uh, but I have. I have heard from colleagues that I respect that it's really good. Yes. And I, you know, I am certainly going to watch it eventually. Maybe anyway. not bright good, <laughs> but good. Yes. Uh, and, you know, Errol Morris, one of the greats. So I think there's a lot to talk about there. And we could do an Errol Morris episode if there were enough of his work, which I think there is on streaming. Um, you know, we haven't done a lot of fully doc centric episodes. So that might, this might be the time. Yes. Um, so that's your second option. Wormwood currently streaming on Netflix. Our third option, and I guarantee it's going to win, <laughs> a film I've been very much looking forward to checking out, have not been able to see yet. Have you seen it, Allison? I have not. So then, listeners, it's up to you. Give us the excuse to watch Pottersville, available now on Netflix, directed by Seth Henriksen, starring Michael Shannon, Judy Greer, Thomas Lennon, Ron Perlman, and Christina Hendricks. I'll read you the plot description. A man's drunken romp. In a gorilla suit, gets him mistaken for Bigfoot, drawing media attention and tourist dollars to his struggling small town. It's the best bad lib I've ever read in my life. And starring? Why is that? Michael Shannon. Yes. As a beloved town figure, right. which is hilarious. Michael Shannon isn't playing like the evil yeah. Scrooge or the dark government agent. No. He's the sweet hero trying to save his small town. Yes. So we... <laughs> My colleague, Oliver uh, Whitney, interviewed Michael Shannon for The Shape of Water and asked, like, why did you make Pottersville? And it's like, basically what it came down to is, like, it, his friend made it. Yes. <laughs> so uh, how can we not? I mean, Attention I have, I have must heard be such paid. comments from it as not good, not fun, good, bad, just bad, bad. Oh, no. And uh, avert your eyes from Alonzo Duralde. Oh. Uh, yes. I, I, I think that... It's probably horrible, but do you know what? That makes it all the more intriguing to me. Yes. All right. So which of these fine cinematic ventures should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You can email us your pick at svu at filmspottingsvu.com or much easier, enter in the poll at the bottom of the page at the uh, at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be in by Monday, December 25th at noon. Yes, that will be Christmas. Yeah, we might not be checking it right at noon, but we'll see. Uh, and after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu and also on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film or hybrid miniseries <laughs> that wins. And then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out around Tuesday, January 2nd.
FilmspottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie slash hybrid thing review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer, and follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. You can also follow us on Facebook. And we have lots of recommendations over there as well. That is also where Allison uh, put up a video of me doing karaoke that I did not authorize. Mm, that makes it all the better. Yeah. Uh, happy holidays. Happy New Year, everyone. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.